Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. I have been looking forward to this for months and weeks and days, counting down the days. Um, Delighted to share this conversation with you. For those of you who don't know, uh, my name is Mandu Reed. I'm the leader of the Women's Equality Party. Uh, We are the first and only feminist political party here in the UK. We're seven years old and we've gone from zero to a movement of 60,000 members and supporters, men and women all across the country. I'm the first person of color to lead a political party uh, when I took the helm in, in 2019. And we're a little bit different. We're trying to put ourselves out of business. We're not about trying to claim power for power's sake. We are trying to raise everyone's ambitions around equality between men and women. But today is not about me and it's not about the Women's Equality Party. It's about viral justice. And the purveyor of viral justice is an extraordinary woman called Ruha Benjamin. She is a professor of African-American studies at Princeton University in the, U- in the USA. Um, there she founded um, uh, a data lab called the Ida B. Wells Data Lab. She may tell us a little bit more about that um, as we go and flow through the conversation. And she's also an award-winning author um, Uh, Her most recent book prior to viral justice was called Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Gym Code. And she's also the editor of Captivating Technology. I urge you to look out for all these things. But today, as I've already said, here's Ruha. Today, as I've already said, is all about Ruha's latest book, Viral Justice. It is a brilliant book. I urge you to Um, You know, if you haven't already, rush out and get yourself a copy. And we've uh, made that in partnership with the RSA, who are hosting this event as easy as possible for you to do. Um, They'll be posting a a link and a discount code. So you can get a 20% off discount if you purchase it at Foils. Um, And please do it. You won't regret it. Please buy it as Christmas presents for uh, people you want to inspire and motivate. It's, it's, It's really, really superb. Um, We are coming to you live and direct. I am in South London. I believe Ruha's in Cambridge. Is that right? No, I'm somewhere in London. I don't know what neighborhood I'm in. (laughs) Somewhere (laughs) in London. (laughs) We were just lamenting that, yes, we're so excited to have this conversation, but um, it's a shame we don't get to do it in person. However, um, and you'll see how uh, this relates to the theme of viral justice. The reason is the rail strikes. The reason is workers um, rising up, making their voices heard. And so, you know, um, I'm certainly in support of that. And you'll see how that links to viral justice as we as we go through the conversation that we're about to have um, this afternoon. Ruha, do you want to just say a little hello before we... Hi. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for logging in. Perhaps one silver lining is that um, more people can join the conversation if, who couldn't necessarily come in person. And so I'm really thrilled. Um, Mandu and I also have a personal connection going back years. And so this was something that I've been looking forward to also for, for months. And I'm just so grateful that you found time in your schedule to, to facilitate. Thanks, RSA, also for hosting. Yeah, thank you. It's really important that we make space and time for conversations like this to happen. And yeah, in the interest of just transparency, Ruha do and I do know each other. We go back a long way. We actually first met, can you believe it, Ruha? It was 27 years ago we first yeah. met. We were um, at uh, high school together or a period of our high school years together at an um, international college in Southern Africa. Um, and we were in AA together. That's not what you probably think, but if it was, there'd be no shame in that. AA in our case stood for Authors Anonymous. It was a writer's group um, where I was the convener. I wrote occasionally, but Ruha was prolific. And as I um, was reading Viral Justice, Mm -hmm. it occurred to me as I was reflecting on on, uh, when we first met and the sort of genesis of our friendship, our relationship, I realized that in our Authors Anonymous group, the seeds were actually being sown for viral justice. 
Absolutely. even though we didn't realize it at the time. Absolutely. Um, yeah, because we would we would come together and 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 through his book, Viral Justice uh, alerted me to the fact that um, when people come together and conspire, what they're actually doing is breathing together. Yes. And in those Authors Anonymous sessions, we would inhale each other's work, each yeah. other's ideas, and we would exhale our own. Yes. And um, one of the later chapters in Viral Justice um, is called Exposed. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's centered on this idea of how important it is for us to be able to embrace vulnerability but not feel exposed as and when we do so. That's how we can grow and learn. And and that really was, when I reflect back, what we managed to create in those Little Authors Anonymous sessions, I I realized. I love that connection. And so the book, we're going to dive into the book in a minute, but I, I feel I've got to just get off my chest my feelings about the book. It's a beautiful book. It's a profound book. It's a visionary book. It's a book that I personally needed, but that we here in the UK and across the world need as well, because so much of our energy and time and bandwidth, emotional bandwidth, mental bandwidth, physical energy, if you're in the social justice space, often goes into calling out what's wrong Mm -hmm. and highlighting injustice, but not enough goes into, I think, um, making space not only for what we're against, but what we are for, what we believe in, where we wanna take our lives and our communities. And viral justice gives something that feels like a roadmap um, for that, drawing on the experiences of fantastic practitioners, uh, you know, largely in the USA, but from other parts of the world too. And so today I think we're gonna dive into that and we're gonna explore some pretty thorny subjects Um, But I want everyone listening to know that this isn't a broadcast. Um, At the end, we'll take as many questions as we can from those of you in the audience. So please submit them via the Q&A function. Um, And, you know, don't feel inhibited. Just put out there what you'd like to dive deeper on. um, And we'll do our best to respond to to anything you want to share. But yes, In those Authors Anonymous groups, our currency was imagination. Mm -hmm. And I always say that imagination is a weapon of mass creation. Mm -hmm. It's what we need Mm -hmm. to try and forge towards a future that um, improves on um, what we've we've all kind of experienced and had to live through. So Ruha, I'm gonna start by um, giving you the floor really to share with us what you had in mind, the title, Viral Justice, how did that come to you? What is viral justice? Um, let's, let's use that as our jumping yes, off point. Absolutely. And I should say, you know, to sort of give you a peek behind the door in terms of the backstory, the initial title was Viral Racism, precisely because my own training and orientation is to look for what we don't want first. And so it, I started writing this at a moment when we were experiencing uh, definitely nationally in the US, but to some extent globally, these twin crises, a public health crisis, but also um, a greater awakening to the harms of policing and punishment um, as a response sometimes to public health, but in almost every arena, this logic of punishment that infects our institutions that we saw come to a head with the murder of George Floyd. Um, And so I was thinking about the longer histories behind these crises and thinking about the role of white supremacy and, and class oppression. And so viral racism was the initial framing. And then the words of a mentor of mine echoed um, in my head where at one point I remember they, they, they um, suggested, they said, you know, as academics, as intellectuals, we are so adept at naming and critiquing what's ailing us, what's harming us, the structures, these death-making structures. And we rarely carve out space, intellectual space, imaginative space to name and to think about and to theorize and to act upon 
the worlds that we want more of, the, the social relations that we want to cultivate and generate, the social fabric that we want to strengthen. And so again, it was that sort of reminder in my head that said, okay, I could, a lot of the book is documenting and, and analyzing what we might be called viral racism, the way that racism infects um, so many of our social processes, but it was also an insistence by renaming it viral justice for me to come back again and again at every turn to how individuals, groups, initiatives, movements are working to counteract that, but not only counteract the harms, but to see the affirmative kinds of things that we want. If we don't want policing, what do uh, you know, social relations based on care and connection um, look like, um, mutual aid, reciprocity. And so you'll see deep dives into the harms for each chapter, whether it's on work or in education, on healthcare, on policing, each chapter sort of tackling, but also there's so many examples that we can learn from. And in some ways, your word, like it's a roadmap and it's it perhaps it's not necessarily an external roadmap, but it's definitely an internal roadmap, a way for us to think about our own emotional, psychic, um, subjective connections to these external processes, because what happens out in the world is really up to the people living in different communities and different societies to determine themselves. A single professor or author shouldn't be creating the roadmap for everyone else. Part of this is an invitation for us to feel empowered, to link arms with people in our own locales, to decide that for ourselves. And um, I also kind of was very struck by the idea of a virus being a small thing, yes, but a small thing that had profound effects on so many of us um, just in, you know, just, just two years ago. And we're still grappling with that. Absolutely. What, say a little more about how that yes. kind of influenced your it's framing so, and your thinking. Yeah, exactly to your question about why. So I talked a little bit about the justice part, but the virus part is really me learning um, from the virus itself. That again, something that we can't even see, that's almost undetectable can bring the planet to its knees, can turn things upside down, can bring whole industries to a standstill, can shape our everyday norms and practices. And so for me, the learning was if something so small can do this in the catastrophic sense, how can we channel seemingly small actions, habits, investments, in the direction of that which is life affirming, that which bring generates more justice and joy. How can we make justice contagious? How can we yes. sort of be spreaders of joy? And so it's really thinking with the virus um, about the power of seemingly small investments, actions, and channeling it in the direction that we want. And so hopefully the examples that come up in the in the um, text um, really inspire us not to just look to the, the macro changes, the laws and policies that have to change, but the everyday changes right underfoot. So thinking about what that looks like, um, almost like a poetics of everyday care and connection that people are already engaged in that they can do more of. And so certainly it's about the power of small in quotes because the, the effects are often anything but small. And there's a tiny little extract here that I, I'm going to read from very early on in the book that kind of encapsulates um, a lot of what you said, including the poetry of um, what this book's offering, what this book's calling us, beckoning us um, to do and think about and understand. Um, do you don't mind me reading your Not work? Not at all. Okay. I, lo I love <laughs> it. Go. It's always okay. fun to hear. <laughs> great, great. Um, here we go. Growing the world we want is like the slow tending of a garden, transforming the plants by fostering relationships, trust, skills, community accountability, and healing. It requires cultivating new habits internally, seeding restorative ways of being together interpersonally, uprooting practices of inequality institutionally, 
and planting alternative possibilities structurally. And you kind of conclude that section by saying, um, if we only concentrate on our internal work while ignoring the fires burning all around us, we'll eventually be consumed. But this is my words now, it's not either or. If we only concentrate on putting out the blaze, we'll eventually burn out. Mm-hmm. So that's really, I think, important and allows us to very smoothly go into the next thing I want to explore with you. Um, the first chapter after the introduction um, is called Weather. Mm-hmm. And um, in the book, you talk about the experience and impact of weathering. I mean, we certainly weathered over the last 27 years, no question. But in the context of viral justice, why was it important that you started with weathering to kind of lead your audience and your readers through um, the journey that the book takes them on? Yeah. And what is it about weathering that um, you know needs to be taken into consideration when yeah. trying to build and grow the world that we want? Yes, exactly. So you know, this idea of weathering is a a public health concept developed by a researcher named Arlene Geronimus. And the reason why I gravitate towards it is because it it provides an image of how our external environments get under our skin, into our bloodstream, affect our our hearts and our minds. Um, And so it's really challenging the distinction between our outsides and insides because it's talking about the porousness of our bodies and the way that hostile environments wear us down in very tangible embodied ways. So it's not theoretical, it's a way of, of actually naming the stressors and oppressors in our environments that create a, a, a unequal uh, um, exposure to premature death. And so when we begin with really naming this process of how our, ex, our environments get under the skin, then we begin to realize that, you know, what we have to do is work on multiple fronts <laughs> to the quote, the quote that you said, we can't just take out the blazes. We can't just work, do work on our, ourselves. We have to think about the relationality of these. And so I'll give a, a couple of examples. You know, some of the groups that I profile and I think with in the book are groups that are founded by formerly incarcerated women. And they are working both to support their family members and loved ones who are um, in jails and prisons and also create supports for those who are vicariously harmed in the communities, in the families that are on the outside. And what's so interesting about many of these groups is that they really show us what it looks like to work on multiple fronts. They're fighting for changes in laws and policies. For example, one group out of Massachusetts recently um, successfully um, had a bill introduced that would put a five-year moratorium on the construction of any new jails and prisons. And one of the interesting things that they did was they approached architects who are responsible for building these structures and put pressure on them to come to reckon with their complicity in the punishment industry. So they're working on this front of dealing with the laws and policies, but the name of this group is Families for Advocacy and Healing, because they say, yes, we need to work and stop the construction, but that doesn't take away the harm and pain that we have and are experiencing. So these groups often also create support systems and um, uh, uh, form like a structure for people who are on the outside to meet together. They provide childcare and transportation to, to almost have like a, a, a definitely a support group. And the idea is that we're gonna deal with both our own trauma and healing, but we're also gonna be advocates. We're gonna also work to, to stop the source of the harm so we don't, we don't constantly have to be healing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because otherwise, if you, you're just focused on the healing and the harms keep coming, there's an, it's never ending, right? And so again, it, weathering is taught thinking about how our insides and outsides are really um, interrelated. Yeah, that thing of interrelation is a theme that weaves through the narrative. It, it, it keeps popping up and actually, you know, conveniently, appropriately, 
it demonstrates by itself the interrelation between all the different aspects you are you are you are actually trying to highlight through the narrative and i'm going to come back to that i think the idea of interrelationships because i do often feel that sometimes um those who are dedicated to social justice work find themselves working in quite a siloed way you know and that's partly a result of scarcity. It's partly a result of feeling that it's impossible, it's too difficult to boil the ocean. So I've got to have a narrow singular focus. Um, we find that in the Women's Equality Party often, you know, we're campaigning for a more equal world, but um, if we blinker our view and don't examine how things that might not obviously be linked and related to um, what it says on the tin about what our agenda is, we kind of um, we, we we can find ourselves unnecessary falling unnecessarily falling short. Mm -hmm. um, let's zoom in a little on one of the areas that really struck me, really moved me, and to be honest, I'm still processing. Mm -hmm. um, there's a chapter called "Hunted," mm -hmm. and that chapter zooms in on police and policing and how racism infects um, those institutions, the, the way justice is administered, justice is administered and forked out. Um, you talk about how societal narratives can often frame racism as one-off incidents, the work of a few bad apples. Um, I'd like us to look at that idea in specific relation to policing and the justice system. Yes. Because we got a lot going on right here, right now, here in the UK, a big reckoning um, um, around how the policing is conducted and carried out, um, who is served, who is penalized, et cetera, et cetera. So why yeah. was that such an important chapter as far as you were concerned? Yeah, um, you know, when we think about the response to police harm, it's often uh, calls to convict the bad officer who is engaged in that. So in the case of George Floyd, you know, convicting um, the officer who, who officer uh, Darren um, and his name, I'm glad I'm skipping his name for, for a moment, but who, you know, uh, pressed down on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And so there's a sense of catharsis perhaps for some, oh yes, justice was won. He did something bad. And, and without looking at the rotten orchard, it's not just the bad apple. This police department, in fact, was in, in many ways a model of, of all of the progressive reforms around policing that we're we are taught to believe is going to help us uh, you know ameliorate these harms you know this police department where this happened um, had instituted community-based policing. They had all kinds of anti-bias training. They had a diverse police force. You know, all of the, the, the things that we're told, if we only institute these better training, better accountability, um, make policing more progressive, that will have this effect and, and will have less police violence. But in fact, this is precisely where this most egregious form of, of police violence and death happened in a very progressive context. So the question for us, if all these reforms didn't work, perhaps we are looking to the wrong solutions. Can an institution born of, of, of slave patrols that is was developed to, to protect property, not people, to protect property, not people. Again, remember that he was called, the, the police were called on the scene because uh, you know George Floyd purportedly was trying to use a counterfeit $20 bill. Property, not people. We can't look to this institution to provide public safety. And when we talk about, even here in this conversation, when we talk about in terms of you know, gender equality, if we look to police and, and these more punitive laws to deal with things like domestic violence and sexual abuse and so on, we're ignoring the fact that the police are often the purveyors of these forms of abuse. The number of people, and I talk about this in the book, of being women who are stopped, especially people who are in any kind of precarious position, whether sex workers or trans um, women or poor women, racialized women are often abused at the hands of the police. 
So how can we turn to the police as a solution to this? And this is what those who critique carceral feminism, that is, you know, looking to the carceral system as a way to support <laughs> and, uh, women's causes, fail to understand is that this very institution um, is, is a purveyor of these harms, both on the streets and in, in behind prison walls. And so we have to imagine and think about other ways of organizing our society, other kinds of um, uh, ways to redress harm and hold each other accountable that don't rely on this deeply faulty, corrupted um, institution. And so in the book, I provide examples of that. And, and I've learned of many as I've been on the road for the last few weeks in different locales that are essentially non-police responses to crisis where in locales around the US, um, towns and cities are developing emergency crisis response teams that are not affiliated with police to deal with things like um, substance abuse and homelessness and mental health issues. Because as soon as we call the police to the scene, then the likelihood of violence uh, um, goes up exponentially. And so it's really going back to your point about broadening our imagination. Um, and thinking beyond the, the current status quo, the oppressive status quo, about what we can grow, what new forms of sociality um, uh, that we can grow. And, and people around the world are already doing that. And so the book is trying to shine a light on it so we can take it seriously and develop more. It's so interesting because it's often seen as a taboo subject. The minute you say, hang on a minute, do we need policing as we've known it? Do we need it at all? Is it the right avenue for us to be pouring so much resource in, all of our trust and our faith and our confidence, rapidly diminishing certainly in this country for various reasons? Um, what you find is um, a real reticence a lot of the time to go there as certainly a discomfort. Yes. And I think that's because we've all, um, to a varying degree, been conditioned yes. to believe that we need these institutions to, um, you know, uh, you know, maintain normality and order, yes. etc. Yes. yes. And do you get that pushback? Do you get that within the academic universe or when you're kind yes. of on, on a tour like this, putting these ideas out into the yes. ether? Yeah, absolutely. Because as you said, it's really stretching the bounds of what we're socialized, what's considered um, rational <laughs> and normal. And yet, as soon as you spend any time, both with the data, the history, the sociology on policing and imprisonment, then you begin to see that the the irrational thing is to assume that this institution is going to produce safety and is going to produce public good. Like the, the, the onus is really on those who hold steadfast to that view to prove that otherwise, that, that it's not actually producing the very, it's not producing the violence that it purports to solve, producing the the, the precarity that it produce, uh, purports to, 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 to deal with. And so, you know, part of that is to shift the responsibility on who needs to justify what. But I think also for me personally, the kind of mental exercise that I go through is I imagine for those living at the height of chattel slavery or at the heyday of colonialism, how challenging it must have been to think beyond those exactly world systems, right? To think, oh, one day there will, for, this thing has existed for hundreds of years. Your parents, your grandparents have experienced colonialism or uh, slavery. And to think, you know what? Maybe this doesn't have to exist in the future. Maybe I will spend my lifetime trying to do my piece to dismantle this this atrocious system that's creating all of these human rights violations. And, and, and so part of it is to build on that legacy and to, to, to use that same stubbornness, that same willfulness to think beyond this, this particular global system that we're, we're, thought, we're taught to think this is the only way. This is the only way to organize, to create safety and well-being, and yet it's producing the opposite results. And so it's that kind of vision 
and stubbornness that I think we have to channel in in working towards the, the abolition of both modern day slavery and the carceral system that our forebears also had to do as abolitionists in previous eras. Thank you, Ruha. And one thing I didn't say about the book is that it's it's um, it's like the love child of two genres. Uh, you, you know, the genre of a kind of like manifesto alongside um, a, the memoir genre. And through the book, what Ruha does very generously is illuminate and bring to life many of the points and ideas she's trying to make by reflecting on her own life experience. And I want to say the RSA is a very important convener. I want to encourage the RSA to, to take something of, of, of viral justice and use it as a template for the kind of conversations that can really push us beyond the conditioning um, we have and the um, status quo that is our comfort zone. So I, I thought I'd just pop that in there. Um, Thank you. Thank you. And I'll just say to that in yeah. the conversation that we were just having, I'm really drawing on my own brother's um, entanglement with the carceral system, someone who has um, suffered with um, mental health, um, you know, for most of his adult life, and how mental illness is criminalized in, in many societies, certainly in, in the US, so that rather than developing a public health, a therapeutic response, we rely on police and punishment as the catch-all for so many issues. And in his case, he was re-traumatized by being jailed in the notorious Twin Towers in Los Angeles, which has been called the Abu Ghraib of Los Angeles because of the levels of torture and mistreatment and death that happened to inmates there. And so as Amandu is saying, I'm giving us a social analysis and invitation for social change, but grounding that in my own personal experiences and those of loved ones that have encountered these systems firsthand. And I think that's part of what I think is the discipline of viral justice, you know, being able to excavate your own experience, the experiences of your community, reflect on that and bring that into the discourse. Um, certainly in Britain, we're a little uncomfortable about um, often doing that. And you come from an academic background. I bet that's not, you know, the strange. first call Very by strange. any stretch. Um, <laughs> now, the, the book obviously was, uh, uh, you started writing it, I think, in 2020 um, through, through the first, you know, uh, full year of the pandemic. And obviously it did shine a spotlight, the pandemic, on all sorts of different aspects of of our lives, um, so many different uh, you know spheres were were disrupted, including healthcare and education. Mm -hmm. And um, in the book, you show how firmly embedded structural racism is in healthcare and education. Mm -hmm. And could we just explore for a moment what your reflections are on on those two areas, and and perhaps how the pandemic caused you to sort of zoom in on some of the issues that were probably familiar to you but were crystallized by the experience of of what we've all been through over the last two years absolutely you know let's just take education for starters there's so mm -hmm. many so and first you know is to begin by the way that that chapter on education is called lies because <laughs> what goes under the heading of education too often are you know either straight out lies or all kinds of um, misinformation and um, fake fake news, et cetera, in our education system when it comes to our history and our, and our society. But one of the things that really came to light in the first weeks and months of the pandemic are the gross inequities that are often dismissed, we look away from in our education system. So we're often, the, the popular mantra is that education is this, you know, the source of equality, an engine of, of, engine of equality, opportunity, and yet it, it often produces exactly the opposite. It's where the kinds of class and racial hierarchies in our society first begin, the, the template for them are in our education systems across schools, which schools get more money or not in the US, predominantly white schools receive $25 billion more in funding than schools that serve racialized groups. And so already it's almost a eugenic 
system, an apartheid-like system without the name. And so these things existed before COVID. They were, you know, business as usual. And yet certain things started to come to light in a much more um, uh, sort of impactful way. Um, As, for example, New York City found um, in the early weeks that a hundred, a couple hundred thousand students going to public schools in the city were actually um, experiencing housing insecurity or were homeless. And so in the attempt to, you know, do remote schooling, these are students that don't have a home to log into class from. Um, similarly, if we're relying on devices to engage in, you know, schooling, And so many families don't have their own laptops or things that the students, so automatically this this state of, um, you know, digital inequity that was already existing, it became much more, the rubber hit the road, so to say, because now you needed these devices to actually get this basic form of, you know, this public good. So this is just an example of the the COVID opening up this space for us to reckon with pre-existing inequities and some places, um, use that opportunity to begin to address those inequities. There was one school district in Maryland that created what they call digital equity hubs, understanding that low-income families couldn't rely, not even didn't have the devices, but their parents were part of the workforce that was considered essential. So it wasn't home to be with students, hunker down in the way that perhaps middle, middle class and upper class families could work from home. And so the school district provided spaces where they would hire personnel to oversee the online schooling of students, providing them devices, et cetera. So rather than just allow this in- inequity to fester, some locales and communities actually use it as an opportunity to work together to address this particular gap in 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 um, access to to digital um, uh, the the hardware and the software and the ped- pedagogical materials for schooling. Similarly, with healthcare, you know, I'll just very briefly mention this was a time, you know, where where if you were pregnant, for many people, they didn't feel safe going to the hospital mm-hmm. uh, because, and then we realize, oh. Um, pregnancy is not an illness <laughs> that you necessarily need to go to the hospital for. So why would I expose myself to even greater exposure to COVID by delivering in the hospital? So many more people started looking for birth centers and midwives and to be able to ha- you know, to deliver at home. And yet there was not enough supply. The, the few handful of midwives, for example, in New York that existed um, uh, were overburdened. They said, we're getting all of these calls for people who don't wanna go to the hospital because all of a sudden we realized the way that we've routinely been treating pregnancy as something that requires a medical hyper medicalized response is faulty. Like people don't want to or need to go um, and to use this con- conventional approach. And so that opened up an opportunity for different states and locales to open birth centers to license commu- license community based midwives. Um, not all places took the opportunity, but I that's where I see you know how in the, over the last two years. Um, if people were paying attention, then you would see with greater greater clarity these everyday forms of in, inequality and um, that existed, whether in healthcare and education, and it really provided an opportunity to think anew about how we approach things and do things differently in a way that addressed the needs of everyone in our communities. And that's it. The interconnectedness is really highlighted because we're all living through um, the experience and the ravages of COVID as a virus, yet opportunities in all of these different spheres emerged as a result of that for us to reimagine, reimagine education, reimagine how we handle childbirth, reimagine policing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you know that it's so strange, Ruha, after all this time, we haven't done much work together ever. In fact, we never really have, but our thinking has converged because The Women's Equality Party has its seven objectives, equal education, equal pay, um, ending violence against women and girls, equal media, et cetera, et cetera. Because the premise is to rate the progress we want, the holistic progress, you have to address them all. Racism and misogyny travel together. If you don't address misogyny and policing, you're not gonna do uh, a job that completely acknowledges and eliminates racism. Right. We've had some questions flowing in. Um, Let's start with one from 
um, somebody in the audience called Emma Beale. Um, this is this is nice because it allows us to kind of um, move into what yeah. does the world that we want look like? Um, how do we maneuver towards it? We've done the analysis of of um, what we're up against. Yeah. She says very simply, <laughs> how do we make justice contagious? Mm. That is such an important question, she says. Yes. Is it possible to offer a 30 second answer? I, I don't think it is, but I think I think we can we can touch on the ingredients of what that looks like. Yes, thank you, Emma, for that question. I love it. Um, you know, I think the the short answer is to really imagine, articulate, and express the affirmative vision of what a world will look like with greater justice. That is both to recognize the things that are causing injustice, but how would our social fabric be strengthened? What forms of trust and mutuality can we then count on um, to, to enrich our lives? And so part of making it contagious is to make it attractive, <laughs> to, to articulate it in the affirmative sense so that it becomes a magnet for people who want more of that in their lives. One of the things that people may not necessarily realize is that inequality doesn't just harm those who are directly the target of unjust systems. It actually um, distorts the humanity and the well-being of those who are so the supposed beneficiaries of this system. And so we see that in public health, that if you look state by state, you look country by country, places with more equality, the so-called haves in those societies are faring better than the haves in places where there's a greater gap. And there's all kinds of reasons why that may be, but you might think about the forms of anxiety, distress, um, paranoia, that come with monopolizing power and resources, because then you're always looking over your shoulder to think about who's coming for you, who's gonna take what you have. But if places that were more egalitarian, the, the social fabric is strengthened, then your the, the, the people who are supposedly benefiting, their own stress levels can go down, their anxiety, their paranoia, their need to punish everything and everyone. And so part of making justice contagious and attractive is to recognize that our, that our fates are linked, that this is not charity work that we're doing, work done on behalf of other people. It's something that will positively affect all of us if we so desire. And that, you know, rounds up what another questioner had thrown into the mix. We've got Matt uh, Figpen here, who's saying, in the struggle with cold-heartedness, wealth hoarding, specifically with white supremacy, so much selfishness takes cover under, we've got this responsibility to shareholders. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it undermines the actual common good. Um, Matt says that drives him nuts. Um, yeah. I agree with him. I can totally um, relate and empathize. Um, but he's interested in what narratives um, you've seen work well to yeah. sort of undermine that um yes. if you can if you can think absolutely. of any yes the absolutely. idea that the common good um of everyone is better than the good of me and mine that protectionist mindset yes and so thank you matt for that question it really is an important one we have to reckon with and i think to some extent there will always be a subset of those who fall into the category that are monopolizing power and resources that are immune to any narrative, any persuasion, any, you know, because they're so invested in holding tight to the to hoarding um, what they have. But I think for others, um, it can be helpful to go back to this idea of shared fate or linked fate and the way that it benefits everyone to create these more just processes and practices. There's a book that I engage in viral justice written by a colleague of mine who's both a historian and a psychiatrist. His name is Jonathan Metzel. And the book that I engage is called Dying of Whiteness, where he looks state by state in the US and shows that in places um, where white Americans have refused to support policies that would invest in the social fabric to strengthen the social safety net, they themselves have directly suffered as a result. And of course, he, he shows how they're not supporting it because they're driven by anti-Blackness. They think that, oh, if this policy, this investment in education or healthcare is going to benefit 
Black folks or Latinx folks or Indigenous folks, then we need to divest from it. We don't need to support it. And yet, literally, they are dying because they can't get access to life-saving treatments or access to a certain you know, level of education. And so grappling with this, what we can think of almost like a, a uh, a feedback loop, uh, you know, a boomerang effect where what you put out comes back to you. <laughs> um, and so part of it is to look at that, at the empirical work on that, but also to strengthen our narratives around shared fate and linked fate and move away from a charity model of social change where those who are so-called privileged are helping those who are not. Because what I show in the book is that white American, white men, the rate of, have the highest rate of suicide. Recently in the last week, data has come out from the Washington Post that white Americans are dying at a higher rate of COVID than black Americans, which is a shift away from what was happening in the early days, precisely because they're not, many of them are not interested in supporting practices and policies around public health because of a, a hyper individualism and a kind of American exceptionalism and a eugenics mentality, really, that the, that the fit will survive, <laughs> and yet they are not surviving. Um, and so, so we have to think about both looking at the data and, and constructing narratives that show that, that pierce this distinction, move beyond the privileged, because those white men who are dying of suicide, I don't think of them as privileged. Um, I think of them as, uh, you know, receiving the, 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 the byproduct of this larger divestment from the social good, and they also are casualties in that divestment. Thank you, Ruha. We've had a really interesting challenge actually come in from um, Nasheed in the audience, who says she's really enjoyed the discussion, but she wants to, us to loop back to where we touched on pregnancy. Sure. She says, um, you know, she thinks that we are potentially at risk of romanticizing yes. non-medicalized birth. Um, she mentions that she had a child in June 2020 after a complicated pregnancy yes. and her challenge to us. And this is really interesting because we in the Women's Equality Party have been campaigning to highlight how um, black women are in this country yes. four times more likely to die in childbirth or pregnancy than white women. Yes. Her challenge to us is we really should be focusing on making hospitals safe for yes. racialized women. Yes. Um, and, and she attributes her experience as being a negative experience because of yes. her name and her race. Her yes. name is Nasheed Kumar Faruqi. Yes. Um, so what let's explore that a little let's absolutely i love that thank you nasheed for dropping that in the chat i think it's a really important element of the discussion when we're moving too fast sometimes some of those nuances can get um washed over and so the first thing that i'll say is um you know the discussion in the book around birthing and doulas it's not an either or um, it's not saying let's not work on this and only focus on this, but it's trying to draw attention one to the the lack of support for people who choose home births or birth centers. Um, but it's also getting us to question why we are treating, even though a, a subset of people who have high risk pregnancies definitely need a more medicalized approach. Why are we taking what a, 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 a small subset need and actually treating everyone with that level of risk. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's getting us to question the dominant model that's predicated on this high risk, on a small subset that have high risk or complicated births, as you say. And so it's not saying let's ignore the need for that, but questioning why we're applying it to everyone. And so similarly, I argue that what we need to do is to learn from black midwives and doulas in my own context, which I had a, a, a birth with a black, um, my, my attendees were black midwives that were practicing in this US state in which their community-based midwifery is outlawed. So they're, they're practicing outside of the law. How can we learn from the way that they approach things and apply it to the hospital care and apply it to healthcare more broadly, even beyond reproduction. And so it's doing exactly what you're uh, insisting here, which is not saying do this or that, but what can we learn from the positive outcomes that are often that often attend with black birth workers and apply it elsewhere. And one of the things that I offer is what's called in the literature, the doula effect 
which is the positive outcomes that uh, uh, often come with the presence of a doula in the hospital for let's say that many of the studies have been with teenage pregnant uh, teenagers. And when they take two groups, some have the doulas and some don't in the hospital. The ones with doula support have exponentially better outcomes in terms of infant health and maternal health. And so what's happening there with that presence of a doula that is advocating on behalf of the birthing person that is holding their hands. And we have studies that show even someone holding you and touching you while you're experiencing extreme pain releases endorphins, your body responds to it. And so there's something about that presence, that accompaniment, um, that advocacy that comes with that approach that I think should be applied not only to reproduction, reproductive health issues, but across the board in terms of um, how we treat people who are ailing or, or sick. And so your invitation to, to not romanticize it and to think about how um, we can sort of reimagine and transform healthcare as, as, as usual, I think is something that I take up in the book. And one of the, the starting points in my context is to approach healthcare not as an industry <laughs> where profit is the primary driver in many of the contexts that I'm describing and to really think about what it looks like to approach it in the way of, of community care and healing that, uh, that um, doulas and midwives do. So thank you, Nasheed. Yeah, that's it. The sort of cross-pollination. You know, we do have these big structures that enable, I don't know, services like medical services to be delivered at scale. But why is it that the ingredients of what makes the localized level um, you know, experience of healthcare so different? Why does that have to get lost? I don't think it does. No. But um, you know how these training institutions are. Look, we're looping back to education again. When I've spoken to medical practitioners, they often say there is an orthodoxy and there is almost a snobbery around mm. the types of things that are relevant and matter. Mm. And <laughs> when you're talking about obstetrics, um, most obstetricians are men um, who haven't necessarily and will never have the experience of, um, you know, going through childbirth. Something gets lost. Um, we've got an interesting question here, but it, it, I think it, it's around place. Um, Angela Gascoigne is asking, um, she says she's really interested in the role place seems to have in creating justice at community level. Have you observed anything, Ruha, about what makes viral justice kind of thrive more likely to thrive in certain places and perhaps less likely in other places i hope i haven't completely lost the gist of your question angela but let, let's go with that yeah i mean it's a it's a i think what i'm understanding there is really um what you'll find is an attention to placemaking and working with people that are our neighbors, that we see in this, the grocery store, that we see at the school board meetings. And so while oftentimes people, when they see viral, they associate it with digital virality, like hashtag activism and social media movements. Um, in fact, I'm talking about something that's much more grounded in place, as Angela suggests. Although I, I don't think, I didn't approach this as I would a normal research project to look for patterns empirically about what makes it thrive in some places. There are just numerous examples for us to glean lessons on how, how things were approached. But I definitely think there's something about contact and proximity and um, you know, the everyday interactions and places where that is, um, you know, that that everyday life sort of generates that, that allows for people to make the kind of connections that are necessary to let's say develop mutual aid networks or develop the kind of organizations I described earlier in terms of families for healing and advocacy. Um, and so to the question, I, I didn't set out to find certain patterns. I think it's a wonderful a sort of empirical question that can be taken up. Um, but in general, stepping back, I definitely, you'll definitely see an attention to place and groundedness in our own backyards that comes up again and again and starting where we are, you know, the kind, you know, my, my son's high school, uh, they would have, you know, a soft, all, before they graduated, they would have to do some kind of community service. And to me, it was interesting because it's a whole generation that cares about social issues and social change. And, and sometimes that can mean looking 
too far away at those who are less fortunate. You know, we have like, um, you know, tourism that's associated with like volunteer work all over the world, going elsewhere. And what this is inviting us to do is to come back home and to think about what we can do in our own in our own place, uh, you know, locales in order to generate the kinds of changes that we need. And so attention to place, but no hard and fast um, rules around which places tend to develop these processes more or less. And have I understood correctly that you're sort of going to um, create or perhaps have already created viral justice labs or a viral justice lab at Princeton? What do you see it doing and exploring? What's next for viral justice? Thank you for that. So the lab actually, um, it was born at the same time as the book, but it, right. it wasn't, they were kind of two sort of independent. One is the kind of this writing of this book. And then the lab was really for my students, the Just Data Lab, where it is related because it's trying to bring together a critique of data and technology and the kinds of tech mediated harms that have been developed um, through advanced emerging systems, AI systems and a creativity. And so we have a lot of artists in the lab. It's not a pure sort of data science lab where students are thinking creatively if, if this particular type of system or app or it platform is creating more inequality in work or education, how can we imagine things differently? So in many ways, without me really setting out to, the lab is putting into practice these two modes of engagement, one critique, the one creative, and it's inviting students to do both at the same time. And so in, in many ways, it is a kind of viral justice experiment um, oh. without necessarily setting out to. Great, final question. Um, is from Suleiman Arkan, and um, he is asking about disability. Um, he points out that over 50% of all police brutality is directed against Black disabled people yes. in the US. Yes. Um, and he's saying, therefore, there's no justice without disability justice. Yes. So how can we then take an intersectional approach, is his question, to yes. our viral justice work and make sure it's accessible and supportive of disabled people, specifically disabled people of color, so yes. that our collective liber liberation is really truly honored and delivered. Thank you, Suleiman, for that question. Certainly, um, learnings from the disability justice movement inform every aspect of the book explicitly and implicitly, where in terms of who I'm engaging and citing. Um, and particular examples really stand out along these lines. For example, in the chapter on Hunted on Police Violence, I share the story of a young man named Freddie Gray, whose spine was severed when police put him in the back of a police vehicle and, and did what they call a rough ride. And so in Baltimore, his particular case garnered widespread attention, protests. Um, but what many people don't know is the backstory to Freddie Gray's life that led up to that moment in which he was put in the police vehicle, which is that he experienced as a child growing up in, in public housing that was um, that had toxic levels of lead in the walls. And so he was disabled as a result of lead exposure as a child, which led to certain forms of discrimination in the context of school, where he was suspended a number of times due to behavior and academic reasons and which, which, which created this cycle in which he was on the streets and arrested and numerous, numerous times jailed. And so before the rough ride, there was already what people call this the school to prison pipeline. But before that, there was this public health issue with lead exposure that disabled Freddie Gray. Um, and similar with other people whose uh, poli police uh, deaths, we know only as a matter of race, there's a deep seated um, disability underlying why they're having those encounters to begin with. And so as you'll see throughout the book, I definitely think that there's no racial justice without disability justice. And it very specific learnings from the disability justice movement that I try to incorporate as we think about the world that we want. Yeah, and I, it, you're really thorough on that and consistent throughout the book in um, weaving those two things together. Okay, we've had um, a reminder of how you can purchase the book with that 20% exclusive discount for everyone who showed up to this event. Um, we've also had an article which uh, Ruha has written or contributed to at least 
that you know elaborates a bit more on pregnancy, childcare, and healthcare. So there's some follow-up we can all do. Ruha, thank you so much for you know making time for this conversation today. Thanks to everyone who's dialed in. Um, I know if we were together physically in a physical space, there would be rapturous, warm <laughs> applause right now. Um, and I just want to end uh, by paying homage to Octavia Butler, whose words open um, the uh, viral justice book. Um, Octavia Butler, for those of you who don't know, was a black woman, a science fiction writer, Afrofuturist, extraordinary visionary. And what she said is that all that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. And I think that's a really important thing for all of us to take away from today. It isn't only about the macro. The micro can seed the sort of macro change that uh, you know, we have been accustomed to appreciating and putting on a pedestal. It's not either or, and we all have it within us, I think, to deliver and seed viral justice. Um, you'll really enjoy the book if you read it. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank and you for facilitating and joining this conversation so much, Mandu. I really appreciate you. Can If, if we can hear the virtual applause for Mandu now. I want <laughs> <laughs> oh, really, I, well, thank you. Actually, you, you close the book with... Um, the idea of what the opposite is of Zoom bombing, where yeah. you disrupt a Zoom call by, I don't know, yeah. flashing or swearing yeah. or whatever. Well, this did feel like a Zoom boom. Blooming, yes. Exactly, <laughs> which is the opposite of that and is the kind of thing we need. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. Thanks everyone at RSA, everyone for tuning in. Hope you enjoy the book. Peace out. <laughs> See you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.